I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Beautiful color. WGDR. Play 
that's the beauty of that it's so spiritual it brings out emotion in you Good morning, Rick. <laughs> Don't feel that new intro's great. Thank you for it. Well, I had an inspiration at the last minute this morning, and you know we had talked briefly about John Coltrane, and I just had that inspiration to to whip that up quickly before I left home. <laughs> well, wow, that's such a collage, and. I mean, it is the, the one I totally adored was uh, it was that young voice saying, "It's happening. I can feel it." Uh -huh. <laughs> it <was> so good. <laughs> yep, I love that one too. Yeah. <laughs> well, congratulations for the inspiration. What a great way to start a day. It was. I mean, it started even before then. I while I was laying in bed, often early in the morning, I get wonderful inspirations. My head is really clear, and I. I often have these inspirations. Morning is a is a sacred time for me. It's it's just a magical time for me. And tell me, with the inspirations, do you find that you have an ability to act on them or complete them or bring you know to realize them in any fashion? Does is is there a process that happens with that? Um, well, they're coming from inside of me or through me in some way. So I feel like as I'm having the inspiration, it feels like it, it is a part of me. It's not something that's separate from me. So I don't feel like I'm losing it. And I, and I feel like it is becoming a part of the fabric of my being. Mm, that's beautiful. So do they, do they necessarily have to materialize into, for instance, the soundscape that you just created? This my early inspiration this morning had nothing to do with this soundscape. The soundscape occurred about maybe fifteen minutes or ten minutes before I was supposed to leave my house. Oh wow! <laughs> so I actually ended up leaving about fifteen minutes late <laughs> because I was working on this. Wow! Under the gun. Under the gun. Yeah, I just couldn't resist. I mean, I get these inspirations at at odd times. They just like. Uh -huh. They just emerge, they sort of erupt, and then I just have to act on them or, or not. If I don't act on it, then I, I miss out. So I love when I, I get those inspirations and I'm able to act on them. Well, and that, I think that's kind of the key is that I know when I've had a certain inspiration, I mean, sometimes, say, if I pick up a guitar to play some music, that I can feel it pretty quickly if the inspiration is there. And if it's not there, then it feels like, well, okay, then it's turning into a practice session rather than something that's going to bring about something new at the moment. Yes, and that inspiration, it feels like an imperative. Yes, it's almost like getting that, you know, the, the quick text message from the divine, in, in a sense, and saying like, okay, here it is, what do you, what do you want to do with it? Yes, and... It, in addition to that, there's a quality of like being plugged into an electrical socket and it being energized. Yes, totally. What? How exciting! Well, sounds like you're having a pretty good day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. And and I get to talk to you again on the air, which is another wonderful treat. 
Oh, it's just so exciting for me, Tonio, because it just doesn't happen, at least in my life, that often to be able to talk with someone in which, you know, we really get to compare notes and we're, and we're really kind of looking at the same horizon as we're comparing the notes. And we seem to be at pretty similar places in our life in relation to all of that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, I mean, I think I'm a little bit older than you, but that was probably because I'm slower at this than you are, <laughs> what it comes down to. Well, then that just means that you're slightly slower than I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> it's just, you know, I, I was thinking yesterday, you know, there's, there's all this stuff that's been happening in my life recently, and there's still this underlying feeling of fragility. And, you know, I think you probably noticed as you got to the end of the book that there's, you know, that there's that little St. John of the Cross poem about, you know, knowing that this is, you know, he, that he must leave this lifetime. How is he going to do that? You know, and he says, I will touch all things tenderly. There's a certain fragility, which I don't know if it creates an imperative for us or not in terms of how do we live our lives knowing we have this backdrop of that we're not going to be here at some point. That's such a profoundly beautiful thing, and that's something that I think a lot of people encounter on their deathbeds, often in the form of regret that they didn't make that, that vulnerable, sensitive connection to everything that's been available to them their entire lives. You're, you're, you're right with that, and, and the thing that I'm wondering, and I think part of what's been happening with our conversation You've already had the realization without having to go to that deathbed, realizing that fragility through your conversations, through your life, that I think it tends to soften us in a certain sense. And, of course, there are times where we need to toughen up and, and, and face whatever needs to be faced, but other times where the softening uh, is just as required in order to be in this world, because otherwise it's just too harsh. Well, life is such a multifaceted experience, and many years ago, probably around 35 years ago, I, you know, after reading Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book, the title of which I'm not remembering. On Death and Dying? Yes, that's it. She has a uh, deathbed practice where you, you close your curtains, put a do not disturb sign in your door, turn off the telephone, and spend the entire day in bed and invite everybody from your life to visit you, not in physical form, but to complete your, your business with them, to you know, share with them all the things that you haven't shared with them and to complete your relationship with them in this world. And... When I did that, the experience was so profound that I did it again a few years later. And I think that experience alone had a very profound effect on my life. And this was at a time when I was, I wasn't even 30 years old yet. Mm. And how interesting that you would embark on that at that age. Most people are usually, at least in, in my experience, quite embroiled in what I call the thick of it, you know, their lives. And to do that at that age is really kind of jumping ahead in time. But, wow, what a gift in terms of going through that exercise and realizing, gosh, 
I really don't want to leave all this unfinished business here on the planet. Well, at the time, I was I was still in the thick of, of all the other aspects of my life, but being as curious and open-minded and as ambitious or, or desperate for uh, new experience and for self-healing, I just, you know, take in whatever I can from around me, and that was just a beautiful, beautiful thing to, to do. How gorgeous. And, you know, it's interesting, Tonyo, because you've mentioned that you, you were an only child. There seems to be some aspect of your own soul that really is great at absorbing and taking in these things around you. I think maybe a little more so than, than other souls that I know on the planet. And does that resonate for you? Yes. I mean, I've experienced other people who are not as open to outside information. I know lots of people that are, they want to do everything completely themselves. They don't want any help from anybody else. And I'm not really like that. I'll take, <laughs> I'll take anything <laughs> I can get because I know I need as much as I can get, or, or at least I have throughout most of my life. And I'm the same as you in the sense that, because I, I didn't really feel like I ever had a map when I was growing up. All that I was aware of was the status quo. And there was nothing particularly wrong with the status quo, but it wasn't resonating for me. So since I wasn't feeling that resonance, I kept looking for little pieces here and there, and obviously that's what ended up in, in the book, you know, Curriculum of the Soul, to come up with a map that clearly there were a lot of other people that were thinking in the same way that they were looking for pieces, and then they came up with their wisdom, whatever it was, and then I could compile this all together and say, well, here's a whole other way of viewing it, that if we get more in the, in the perspective from the soul, and, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of wisdom pieces that can fill in there, then maybe it'll give us a life that will be more in touch. It's not like it's we're here to avoid suffering, or we're here to like, oh, I just want to live in bliss, or any of that kind of stuff. It's really like, how can we navigate this thing and really have this incredible, rich experience and satisfying life? By the time we hit our death, we say, wow, that was a great ride. Yes. And another aspect of that is, like you, I observed the adults around me and the world around me when I was a child, and they were insane, <laughs> completely, completely insane. That's great. The status quo and our and and pretty much every aspect of our culture was was nuts. It didn't it didn't work at all for me. And you were talking about creating maps or finding maps. You know, I searched for maps all my life, and early on, you know, the maps that I discovered, they seemed really wonderful, but they always seemed well, maybe not always, but often they seem kind of abstract and, and out of reach from, you know, a, a gut level or a heart level or, you know, a core level because yeah. I hadn't had enough experience yet to integrate it, to make it so did, part of myself. And, and when, you, you know, when you talk about the insanity of those adults that, that, that you viewed in your life, did you not have any actual example of a human being where you could say, yes, it looks like this person really kind of has something figured out. 
I didn't have that experience in my life until much later. Actually, yes, I had a great-grandfather who didn't exhibit any of the insanity that I was observing anywhere else. He was the only, you could say, rock in my life at the time. Everybody else was insane and bouncing off each other in crazy ways. And if you could describe his sanity, that is the thing that was resonating for you, how might you describe that? He was fully present for me when I would come to visit, and he loved me unconditionally. And yeah. he passed away when I was about six or seven, I think. Yeah. So that was, that was a really beautiful presence in my life. Wow. Influence. How fascinating, because, you know, I've been thinking about this idea, of, and this is related to, to this, this book that I'm reading currently right now, which is, you know, the, it's in essence transcripts of, of a mystery school, the mystery school that I attended out here in, in, in New Mexico. And it's talking about, I mean, they don't use this language, this is kind of my language, but how every soul has a certain kind of texture and, and feeling to it, and that the, there's, there's a, like almost a natural resonance when we click, like that relationship you had with your grandfather, there's a natural resonance. Like when I first heard, just like with you, I don't know if it's the first time you heard Coltrane playing my favorite things, there was a resonance for me that I didn't really, there wasn't an, 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 you know, I didn't have to analyze it and have to think about it. I just knew like, oh, this is totally happening. Just like, just like in your soundscape, it's happening. I can feel it. That there's a resonance that happens in our lives, that happens with people, it happens with landscapes, it happens with whatever art, can happen, you know, conversations, that it's right there. And I think it's, it's this lovely gauge of you know, the presence of our soul at that moment when that resonance takes place. And there's something about that particular piece that transcends the genre of jazz. It's like it's so alive, it has such a profound effect on me that even though at the time jazz was not my preferred form of music, that piece just transcended that whole dynamic and it deeply moved me it's very interesting you mention that because you know there was a an old dj buddy from 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 this is the old days back in colorado when i was living up there and he used to talk about jazz as and this was his funny little metaphor he says sounds like fire at the zoo and <laughs> and and i know how a lot of people can be put off and of course you know i, I try and do something different on my own radio show playing jazz which I think that, like with a lot of things, if you can introduce someone properly, say, to the writings of Gurdjieff for whatever, then, then it really is very helpful versus this other thing. But this quality you're talking about and with my favorite things played by Coltrane, I think you know, there's that two-chord background that really grounds it quite nicely, uh, you know, of, of, you know, when they go into the whole soloing section. And then he takes off where... You know, if you took that solo without the background, it would be kind of fire in the zoo in terms of just going all over the place. But that grounding underneath it keeps us so connected. And I, and I agree with you. I get such a sensation of like, 
oh my gosh, listen to this person soar. In that particular piece, there's a beautiful melody underlying the whole thing. And I yes. think that we can look at life in the same way when we allow ourselves to sink down to a certain level of maybe you could call it a soulful experience that yeah like have you because obviously you know you've been involved with music for a long time and as a dj if one was to press you on it would you say that there is a soundtrack to your life that you could actually put in you know in terms of music um, it would be a huge, huge soundtrack. Uh-huh. And I think that's fantastic. Because I've but encountered an incredible amount of amazing and wonderful music in my life. Uh-huh. I was the music director here at this station many years ago, so I had just a tremendous amount of exposure, and I did a Sunday morning show. When the show, when I was first started doing I was doing it from 8 o'clock in the morning till 3 in the afternoon. Oh my God, what a shift. <laughs> and basically, I was exploring music to the hilt. Wow. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So, if, you know, I, you know I'm going to do a show this Sunday because yesterday I celebrated a birthday, and, and I want to do a show in which I'm inviting all my old friends in terms of both poetry and music. So, these, and I don't know if this is, if, if it's the same experience for you, Tonio, which is this idea that, that there are certain pieces that I'll go back to, whether it's poetry or music, and this is also can include literature, film, things like that, that if I'm in a particular space, you know, and it could be an emotional space, could be psychological space, whatever, that I can go back and I'll use these, you know, as old friends in terms of reassurance and sort of help me to get me, and not, you know, not that I'm struggling necessarily, but they're like touchstones for me. Is that the same experience for you? Oh, yeah. I have lots of touchstones in my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I just think these are really important tools. You know, last week when we were talking about Ho'oponopono, you know, very essential tool, and I think having these touchstones around as well, uh, you know, that, that we can, like there's that end of the Stanley Kunitz poem, uh, called Touch Me, and at the very end, you know, he tells, he's talking essentially to his wife, and he says, touch me, remind me who I am. Hmm. Yes. I can feel that. As you, as you said that, I could just feel that, even though I had to delve back in my memory a few years. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the single life. I know all about that, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love the single life. I, I love the freedom to explore my own creativity and, and have all of this space to myself. But at the same time, I also love the magic of, of intimacy, of a collaborative intimacy. Yeah, I feel the same as you. You know, I wonder at this moment in time, Tonio, and tell me what your thoughts are, that now that we've had, for instance, psychotherapy and all of these health help books and all these things around for, you know, a fair number of years, that the full complexity of relationship is really now easily at our fingertips, that we're quite aware of it. Before, you know, there was the old paradigm of, in essence, codependence, 
you just get together and you you know you bear it and you just keep going and going. Now that we know the full complexity, I, I notice at least with, with some young people, my own son, for instance, he's aware of that complexity because he saw his parents get divorced, and there's I think a hesitation having all this knowledge available where people are saying, well. Between single and getting involved in a relationship, yes, there are complexities about being single. And, uh, and then knowing the full complexities of being in relationship, there's, I think, for some, a hesitancy of like, this sounds too complicated for me. <laughs> it's really funny that you mentioned that because I was just recently thinking about an interview I did several years ago with somebody up here who had written... He's a psychotherapist and couples counselor and meditation teacher. And he wrote an article based on his two teenage daughters who had declared that they were never going to get married or, or get into a couple relationship because it was just too complicated. And I invited him to be on my show to talk about that because I just loved the article that he wrote and the whole subject, that whole issue. And we had an amazingly delicious conversation about that because connected to what you were saying about at this point in our life, having gone through all, all the complexities of relationship and the experience of codependency and those experiences of, you know, almost desperately desiring a partner who's going to love us and fill that that hole inside or or give us the love that we felt we we didn't get yeah. when we were younger and at this point in my life I'm old enough to feel like well I've had these wonderful wonderful relationships I've been through hell and back and I've also been through heaven and back and and my perspective has has come full circle to the point where I am so incredibly, deeply appreciative of all of my past partners and everything I went through, all of it, every bit of it. And I just feel like I've been so incredibly blessed. And I feel like I could die now without another relationship like that because I just feel like I have it. I have it in my being. I have it in my heart. I have it in my guts. I have it in my bones. I have it in like every cell of, of my being. And in a way, I feel deeply fulfilled by that. It doesn't mean that I don't have longings at time to have that experience again. But I just feel in a way, I almost feel complete in that way. Mm, that's really quite lovely. I guess, you know, what I wonder with myself is that and this is sort of the other side of the coin in terms of all that information out there, that I didn't ever feel that I was really taught, and I don't think our culture is very good at this in general, in terms of how do we learn how to love ourselves first and foremost. Oh, yeah. This is not in some narcissistic way or egotistical way, but, you know, just to learn to love ourselves like taking care of my body, like investigating my beliefs, all that kind of stuff. And, and so I've, I've been feeling that I've been working on that since the, how many ever relationships I've been through in my life, including a marriage. And like, well, let's try this first, Rick. And 
get this kind of down, and then what would it be like? And again, I'm, I'm sort of leaving it up because this is sort of my commitment to this idea of, of a soul existence, a soul-based existence. Let the soul arrange it. And I think you mentioned that in one of your correspondence with me as well, which is the soul's arranging the whole thing anyhow, and that's kind of the, the, that place of grace that we talked about last week. So let's just see how it shows up, and maybe it'll show up in terms of a relationship. Maybe it'll show up just in terms of, you know, like you and I having a great conversation and me going out in the woods and taking pictures of the fall leaves, things like that. That, that there's many ways that this can all get accomplished, but you know, I've been seeing this with my own dear brother that we, you know, we've been talking about you know, just a little bit in the last few weeks, which is that I see how much he has fallen in love with his work first before he even considered falling in love with himself. Mm. It was sort of, it's sort of like, remember, there are those four questions that I have there in the book that Angelus Arian points out for, you know, this is the indigenous version of soul retrieval. When was the last time you danced? When was the last time you sang? When was the last time you sat in silence? And this is a clincher. I love this one. When was the last time you were enchanted by a story, particularly your own? Yeah, that, that takes us back to having that kind of appreciation for ourself and, and acknowledge, fully acknowledging ourself and being present with ourself, which is essentially loving ourself and accepting ourself as we are, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, there's um, I don't know, I, I can see if I can find it here, because I think you finished off the, the last of the book in, in the past week or so, didn't you? Yes, just a couple of days ago. And, and tell me, well, while I'm looking for this poem, what, what was your, your final sort of, well, I mean, not that there would be one feeling, but what was your, your final thing by the time you finished? Or, you know, what was going through you at the, at the time when you did complete it? Just great appreciation that you had basically covered all the bases and done it so in in such a beautiful way, integrating other people's brilliance and insights and creativity in a way that was really celebrating like celebrating the whole world rather than just your own writing and your own voice. So to me, I just felt like it was a combination of your brilliance and your humility to present this and to put all of this together. And oh, you're so sweet to say so. Well, here's this poem, which was from, uh, the, I think it's the chapter on living a soul life. And this, actually, this has been one of the sadnesses about writing this book. Since I've written it, there's a number of the poets have already died from the time that the book was published to where we are at this moment. This is one of the poets, one of the great poets, Derek Walcott. And it's a short poem. It's not long. It's called Love After Love. And here's the poem. The time will come when, with elation, you'll greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself, Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. 
sit. Feast on your life. That is so beautiful, and it's also so indicative of all of the precious gems that you've collected and put together in this book. Oh, you're so sweet to say so. You know, it was, <laughs> you know, I really don't have much of a response to that. It was just the sort of process that I guess I needed to go through. And, you know, when I look back, Tony, I was like, oh, my God, look at all this effort that I put into it. But, you know, it's nice. I have this document. And now, like I mentioned in our first interview, and I've been thinking about this in the last few days, the question is, so how do we embody, like, all the wisdom you've been collecting, along with the experiences that you have had in the course of your life, how do you now, in this particular moment, embody that with your own, you know, within your own person, so that when you walk out in the world, you're really kind of a composite of, you know, both the failures, you know, the successes, if you want to consider them, all those things. So, so we're not walking around either, you know, like we don't want to be robots, of course. We don't want to be just, you know, sort of representatives of a paradigm. I think we want to go out and still represent who we are as individual souls and hopefully what we've learned along the way. Yes, living, breathing, um, and here's where language fails me. It's like we are these, it's like, I have an image of a fire. We're like fire moving through the world. Mm, I like that. That's really beautiful. Not a fire that burns, but a fire that is dynamically alive. Mm. That is really beautiful. Yeah, because there's that embodiment. You know, and part of the, the way I got to this, you know, I was mentioning to you in the correspondence that my own kind of spiritual community, the Noetic Group, had a, a, um, a webinar the other day about this book that, that Robert had compiled concerning all of his teachings at Mystery School. And the thing that I was missing myself, and I'll express it to the group, coming up here in, in our next, you know, our next meetings is that the concepts are brilliant, you know, that, that Robert Waterman and his partner, Carrie Thorne, are really kind of, the, they're sort of like the, the MacArthur Fellows in the spiritual world, because it's just such a genius what they're bringing forth. But the thing about it, the concepts are glorious in themselves, and that's what the book is. But the thing I'm really missing with this book is that they are the physical and emotional, psychological, living, breathing embodiments of these principles. So, for instance, when, you, when you're with Robert Waterman, he has this wild sense of humor that goes from just horrible puns, I mean terrible puns, to really very subtle, subtle little observations that you'll just be laughing for minutes at a time and I don't know how you can really transcribe that into a book exactly, that it's their living embodiment that is that once you spend time at a workshop with these people, you're convinced, oh my gosh, these are the real deal. How blessed we are to have them on the planet. You know, that, that reconfirms the metaphor that I just came up with about being like fire, because yes. the one thing that fire can do is it can kindle itself into others. It can spread. It can uh, ignite that same aliveness in others. And that's, that's actually a, a nice metaphor for the way that 
ancient wisdom has been transmitted throughout the millennia. Mm-hmm. And I think also we can even further that metaphor and say that we can, we can literally be warmed by the, the brilliance of other people's fire. Yes. And our souls and our spirit can be ignited by the soul and spirit of others. Absolutely. That's, I think, isn't that, to me, that's, you know, this goes back to, as you know, from mystery school, one of those first things is, you know, the, the primary work is going inside. And if we can get that work accomplished to whatever degree, then we create literally a certain kind of energetic field you know, within ourselves so that when we go out in the world, we don't even need necessarily to have to talk or explain anything. I, think, I remember, I love when Marshall Rosenberg, it was, I, you know him well, you know, the, with nonviolent communication, he mentions that 90% of communication is nonverbal, that it's already there energetically, whatever's happening, and we're, in theory, kind of finishing it off when we finally open up our mouths. If we're fortunate, we're finishing it off. If we're not so fortunate, we're distracting people from the rest of the more real communication. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I wonder, and I'm sure that there's, you know, sci-fi things. You know, like I remember, what was that, that book, uh, Mutant Message Down Under? Did you ever read that book? Yes. That was and, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, and same for me. It was a long time ago. But remember how within that Aboriginal tribe in Australia that there was this telepathy that was happening between them and that they didn't really have to have much in the way of conversation. But the interesting caveat that was within that was that each person had to have done a certain amount of work so that shame, blame, resentment, anger, all those kinds of things had to get cleaned out of there for this other process to take place. You know, that reminds me of the visceral feeling experience I got from this old practice in the in the mystery school community that I lived in for about five years back in the 70s. Every Friday, we all practiced objective silence. So, mm. so that was a 24 hours of not speaking unless there was an emergency or, or something really important that had to be said. And the experience of being silent is a wonderful way of really being present with oneself and observing oneself and questioning oneself because thoughts still come up. But when you have a regular practice like that, it becomes natural to pause and to reflect on things, including our thoughts, you know, because there's that constant impulse. Well, not constant, but often the impulse to talk and say things out loud that we're thinking. Mm -hmm. And there's this delicious quality of silence. You talk about the work being the inner work that we that we all need to do as being so important to all of this soul work and, and soul experience and soul life. Silence is such a cornerstone of that. Oh, you're so, you're so right. So tell me, after you all, when you had done this experience, you know, with your group, 
how did it change communication between you all if you even needed to communicate at all? Well, for that one day, even while we're out in the world, acting in the world with each other, we're doing it with a level of inner connection because the silence brought us, reconnected us to that inner state of awareness, of, of ref- self-reflection as we're moving through the outer world. So I think what it did was it catalyzed a more whole integration of what you might call the soul life. Mm-hmm. At an early stage in my life and, and an early stage in probably all of the people in the community's spiritual life. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, I'm reminded of, did you see the, the recent documentary called Maiden about the, uh, the first women crew that did the Whitbread race, the round-the-world sailing race? I haven't. I really want to see that. There's one moment towards the end, Tonio, and this is, I'm not giving anything away at all, but near the very end of the film, when they were finally making it back to port, there's, you know, the, the, the captain, Tracy Edwards, uh, she's saying we had gotten to the point, this crew of women, where we already knew what the other person was thinking, mm-hmm. and we could just go ahead and do whatever needed to happen. Yes, well, that, that reminds me of a really critical core element of the interrelationship we all had in this community. All of the work we did, all of our communications, all of the meditation work that we did, we began by doing an Om salutation to each other and to ourselves to acknowledge the essence of ourselves and the other person. So we began all the work from this recognition that we were present with and coming from and relating to our own essential and each other's essential being, you know, at the deepest level. And we had, because we were doing this practice on a daily basis for years, this was a a visceral gut level in our bones experience. It wasn't theoretical. It wasn't philosophical. It was deeply visceral. And did you feel that you were getting to a point where certain conversations didn't even need to necessarily happen between each other because this simpatico had been created? Yes. Many things did not need to be said at all. And the things that generally needed to be said were the things that were getting in the way of that direct... Connection. Does this almost sound like a model for an intimate relationship, in a sense? That's just what it sounds like to me. To me, it's a model of a sane, intimate relationship. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what was happening. We were all having an intimate relationship with each other. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Because, you know, there was one of my teachers in the past who was related to this, this noetic group. She would talk about the mainstream world as the drama trauma playing field. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's something to be said for that. You can certainly see it in the news, 
You can see it, you know, in how a lot of people, well, the very thing when you were mentioning earlier in the conversation, the insanity of the adults around you. And there's that drama, trauma, playing field. And I think a lot of people can get caught there because they really don't realize they think that's the only thing available, that that's how, you, that's how you're supposed to live your lives. And I realize that there are some cultures that are more expressive, particularly if you start heading south. Like I noticed this, you know, it happens in Europe as you head south towards the Mediterranean. It happens here once you start heading south you know, of the border and getting down into more Latin cultures. There's more and a more expressive quality, but there's something quite lovely about that, too, because they're quite efficient in terms of expressing, say, anger or something, and simply once it's expressed, they're done with it, and you can move on. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, we have, tends to be in our culture, that we, we don't, we're not very good, efficient as far as expressing what, at first, expressing whatever it is we're truly feeling like what Marshall Rosenberg would talk about, you know, begin all your sentences, you know, in, in discussions with, with the letter I, you know, so that you can tell what you're feeling. Then, you know, moving on from that emotion, we, we're pretty big on resentment. And my guess is this would be the Louise Hay perspective, which is, well, resentment is where a lot of, uh, a lot of cancer shows up in people. Yes, and what you were just talking about with Marshall Rosenberg's practice, that's what we did in that community that I lived in for five years, every week we would sit down for a few hours and we would do what we called cleaning karma. And we would sit in a circle and we would go around and everyone would have the opportunity to share with everyone else any issue that had come up during the week. And we always talked about it in terms of I and what we experienced from that. We never used language like you or we didn't blame, we didn't attribute anything to the other person. All we did was objectively describe our memory of the experience and how we felt about it. That is so beautiful. You know, I don't know if you remember, there was, I think, in the chapter that I have in the book on intimate relationship, and I was, I was referring to um, Patrice Moladoma Somme, and he was talking about in Burkina Faso, uh, in you know obviously more of an indigenous culture, that once a week a couple would be put into a circle. They would sit inside a circle, a small circle, you know, made in the circles made in the dirt. They were back to back to each other, and once a week they would yell at each other. So all the or you know or express to each other all the things that had got them upset about their partner. And once they did this process, this is with supervision of an elder, then they would be doused with water and then continue on with their lives. <laughs> well, I have an interesting experience to share <laughs> with you that's sort of like that. We had, in that community, there were three levels of that type of work. The first level was one that I had just described to you, where we all did it very respectfully. And again, to remind you and everybody else, before we even started that, we did that salutation to each other to acknowledge that we were coming from our deepest core essence and fully, fully acknowledging and recognizing the deepest core essence of of the others. And the extreme version of karma cleaning is when there's so much emotional charge 
that at least one of the parties just feels like they can't go on without dealing with it. And the, the process is called the line. And <laughs> I did it with my mother. My mother came to me and said she needed, she wanted to do the line with me. And I had actually never done it with anybody else, but I was open to doing it. And I have to preface that by saying that my relationship with my mother was very, very difficult growing up. She was manic depressive, and she was one of the more insane people I knew in the world. And we had a sibling rivalry relationship growing up from an early age. Oh, interesting. And so we did this, and she started by telling me how I had ruined her life and how she's had such a difficult life, and it was all my fault, and... See, the, the main difference between the line and the, the previous karma cleaning thing is that in the line, you can say anything. Uh-huh. And in order for the person who's receiving to stay present, we repeat internally a complex mantra that you have to stay deeply focused on in order to do it. Yeah, to withstand that kind of assault. Exactly. So yeah. that our brain, our mind, doesn't get engaged in a response mode. So for 15 minutes, she's railing at me. Wow. Just no holds barred. She's pulling out all the stops and literally dumping all of her anger and frustration and resentment on me. And after about 15 minutes of this, I finally have, I've had it. (laughs) I've just reached the limit because I was on the other end of of a very dysfunctional relationship with her. And I, I just started yelling at her. I said, and you, you totally ruined my life. And I did this with her for about one minute. And then we both started laughing. <laughs> great. I love it. It was such a profound release. How interesting, because it's almost as if, and this, I don't know, how, how exactly it's related to soul, I'm sure I could analyze it if I wanted to, but you had, it's almost through the full expression of whatever anger, resentment, and everything, there was an exhaustion that came about. Exactly. And there was a form for it, a structure that we both respected so that we both felt safe to go into it and be a part of this process that could potentially be extremely damaging and traumatizing if there wasn't that structure. And did you feel like from from that moment on, you know, at that point, at the end of this, this very interesting exercise, did that shift your relationship with your mother? Yes, but not... Not fully, because I was, at the time, I was in my mid-twenties. So I was still too young. I had not done a lot of the inner work that I was yet to do in order to process all the, the issues I had with my mother. It wasn't until, I would say, about 10 years later that I had the inner fortitude and presence of mind to be able to know within myself that we had reached the point where I needed to deeply honor and respect my own needs and boundaries with her because she was often being manipulative 
and trying to get me to do things. And this was her way of moving through life, was to get other people to do things that she wanted them to do for all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, her attempt to control the world around her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To make her feel safe or secure or whatever. You know, to give her whatever she felt she needed to fill whatever. And she had a devastating hole to fill in her life. I mean, I am deeply compassionate of her. And it wasn't until about 10 years after doing that, the line with her, that I realized that I just needed to draw the line with her. And I told her, you can't do this with me anymore. And if you continue to do it, then you will lose me. I will not stand for it anymore. And she actually tried it with me one more time. And I said, this is my final warning. If you do this one more time, we are done. If you want to continue to have a son, you cannot pass this line. And she respected that from then on. And did it take, what, what sort of wherewithal, what, what did you draw from in order to be able to create that boundary? It was all the inner work that I had done. Yeah. Up to that point. How beautiful. How beautiful, Antonio. You know, for me, in, and I did set a boundary. I did this with my father at 16, and I don't need to get into that story, but as I was trying to explain to my older brother last night on the telephone, we were talking about our, our past, and, and I didn't tell him, but, you know, there's a quote I have in the book, a short little quote from the Buddha. I may have mentioned it in our first interview, which was, to understand everything is to forgive everything. I love that quote so much. Yeah, that, that's almost at the end of the book. And, and so when I was talking to my brother about our parents, I said, you know, understand the generations that they came up through. Understand, you know, that our father had a very stern father, and he was simply replicating that kind of authority in terms of a parent. Understanding all of that, it's at that point, I, I can't really shame or blame my father for whatever happened in the course of growing up and all of his sternness. And, you know, his, his favorite line was always, no, no ifs, ands, or buts. I may have mentioned that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that I can, you know, understand his background, it's like, well, now this starts to make sense. Yes. And then it's much easier to navigate because I had to get to certain boundaries with him. There was the one, a major one, where I just simply said, no, I'm not going to accept this, your power trip anymore. But it was later on when he would start, he'd love to get on a political soapbox about whatever. And, and I got to the point, Tony, in my own life, because my father and mother, the way they met was through dancing. And, and they still, they had danced all through their lives. And, and as soon as my father would get on his political soapbox, I would say, you know, this is not bringing any connection between you and me. Let's talk about Fred Astaire. And he would, I think a little bit hesitantly, but he would go right to, let's talk about Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, where we could have a connection about something that was, that was meaningful to both of us. Mm-hmm. That's so beautiful and such an important level of experience. And yeah, I was, I was thinking about that quote of the Buddha and how, how utterly simple and yet so deeply profound. And I have to say that this is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio, the Magical Mystery Tour, and I'm talking with Rick Halterman. And this conver- these conversations that we're having have all emerged out of 
my experience of this really absolutely terrific and wonderful book that Rick has written called Curriculum of the Soul. So say that line from the Buddha again. To understand everything is to forgive everything. And we often convince ourselves that we understand things, and yet we probably are not at the place of forgiveness yet. I think there's also, you know, as we've talked about before, the tendency in our culture is really to, it, it's a very literal culture. You know, it, it's not particularly metaphorical in general. It loves to analyze. So the tendency is to want to analyze and, and do all this, you know, trying to understand from almost one level. When I would say more accurately, there's probably about 14 different levels for all of us to consider, and I couldn't even name half of them. But, you know, we're talking the emotional, the psychological, all these different things. Like, I've been working with a sibling, another sibling, recently, and you know, he gets triggered every time he sees homeless people. And there's definitely a thing in there that he does not want to be homeless in this lifetime. And I would explain to him, you know, on one level, here's the soul saying, it's just another experience. Who cares? And who knows, here's another level, who knows if some of those homeless people actually prefer to have a lifestyle, some of them, I'm not, I'm not going to speak for any of them, but some of them, because I know some people around here, they actually prefer that lifestyle to not be bound by any of these other things that one would normally expect within our kind of consensual reality paradigm. So here he's not even understanding his own trigger so that he can't go out in the world, for instance, and be compassionate to a homeless person, to me, which would be the more, you know, the more appropriate response to see somebody who clearly doesn't have, say, the gifts that some of us have in our lives in terms of resources, whatever. It's like, well, but aren't we here to help? I mean, isn't there that line in that one... Dao Te Ching passage where he talks about, you know, a bad man is a good man's job. Mm. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, so there are all these different levels of how do we understand, you know, understanding ourselves, understanding, say, this other person's circumstances, understanding what larger energetics may be playing into all of this sort of stuff, understanding the karma. You know, it's so expansive, and I think that's why that little quote by the Buddha is really so profound because I'm not sure that any of us, at least I'm, I'm going to speak for myself, am I really capable of that depth of understanding? Probably not, but, you know, because I, I think there's that thought that, well, we're only really going to understand when we have died and gone to the other, other side because then we'll finally get the big picture. But then on the other hand, you can die before you die. Yes. And you and by doing deep inner work and yes. and after being on all sides of the fence enough times and and being able to see yourself in everybody else because you recognize the basic pattern of human existence and and the human path of of experience you come to realize that we're all just lost souls up to a point, you know, floundering in this world, try, you know, doing the best we can, and sometimes the best we can looks pretty poor. I mean, looks dreadfully yeah. 
inadequate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yet, to really understand that they are literally doing the best they can with what they've been given, then forgiveness isn't even really an issue anymore. It's not an activity. It's something that that emerges or that just is. It's like when you understand... Yes, and I think almost that one could almost even interchange, depending on the circumstance, that uh, you know, to, to understand everything is to have compassion for everything. The deepest kind of compassion. Yes. I agree. And our culture, you know, thinks of understanding one-dimensionally, and that's yep. intellectually. And that level of understanding is so hollow. Well, you know, I think it's really, it's so useful, for instance, if, you know, that ancient Land Rover that I have, and, you know, the, the fan belt goes out, that linear thinking is very, very useful in that kind of thing. Oh, I'll replace the fan belt in the car, it can start running again. But when we get into the realm of human, you know, human interaction, air interaction with the world, when we get into the realm of our souls, it gets very complicated very fast. And linear thinking is always an interesting way. You know, it's sort of like when I was mentioning this thing about Robert Waterman's new book. The concepts are so brilliant. I mean, I just adore, adore, adore the concepts. But can't leave them alone as the concepts. The question then is, how do they become embodied? Yes. Well, how do they become embodied? <laughs> well, I think you've been discovering, Tonio, there are certain practices, you know, that... You're like there's this, I mentioned to you in one of our correspondences, and you had your own version of it, which was quite lovely, but I remember reading in a Sharon Salzberg book, one of the, the, the great Western Buddhist teachers here in America, that she had this practice before walking into, say, a Walmart, a Kmart, one of those stores, where she would keep repeating to herself, everybody here wants to be loved. And... And I know when I've done that practice, uh, you know, and it's not like I do that all the time, but when I do go in and all of a sudden I'm finding some, like, elderly woman from here in Taos is, is chatting me up, some woman who I've never seen before in my life, and I'm thinking, this is so fascinating. Look at this thing working. That's such a beautiful way to approach life with, with an intention like that. It, it's very similar to the thing that I shared with you in, in one of my emails about this walking meditation that I do where I send out love with every breath, love and joy to everybody and everything I encounter. So, like, I could do that practice in a Walmart or any place where there are lots of people, and it would be a visceral way of kind of achieving the same effect, I think. Yes. I think you're, you're exactly right. That, that's, that is. So you found your own version, which to me is just gorgeous, because now you've simply tailored for what works for Tonio Epstein. Right. And that way I get to practice what is most important to me, or often is, which is just to experience love and joy as much as possible, as often as possible. It certainly feels a lot better that way, doesn't it? It sure does. <laughs> <laughs> so back to your question that you posed just a minute or so ago, I think we can elaborate on that, that this idea of, so what are the tools that any of us have hopefully collected in the course of, 
you know, our experience so that we actually have kind of a metaphorical toolbox at hand for when things get crazy. And I think that there are regular practices, at least, you know, for me, meditation, gratitude, things like that are really very useful. Then whether one wants to use like the intentional practice that you just mentioned that you use, if one wants to use Ho'oponopono, if one wants to go to therapy, if one wants to go exercise, uh, you know, on a regular basis, what are the tools that keep resetting our lives so that we can still get back to this sort of center ground or as, as like my teachers Robert and Carrie would say, how do we get back to our loving? And how do we do that on a regular basis so that that becomes kind of the guidepost from where we're always operating from? Yes. How do we get back to the core essential nature of who we are and the yeah. recognition of that in each other? Yeah, and I think that part of the point of the book was that I didn't really want to do like we had talked about before, you know, 18 steps to happiness, that kind of thing, because I really don't believe in that approach. I really believe in the individuality, in the idiosyncratic nature of each soul, that just wanted to give a very general map that says, yes, here's joy, let's consider desire, let's consider silence, solitude, let's consider suffering, let's consider addictions, let's consider trouble, let's consider being out there in the world, our work and our, you know, our intimate relationships, and how then will you, once you consider these areas, then figure out, so how, what's the specific way you want to approach these areas so it works for your life? Right. How will you put it all together that yeah. fits your own unique path or life journey or who you are? Exactly. And of course, there is an underlying thing here, which I think you and I have already have agreed silently together with there is a level of responsibility that's required of each of us as human beings to really investigate all of these areas and decide what does and what doesn't work for us individually. Mm-hmm. But, and that's the hard thing, is that you know, I think we have, like there are cultural, what I would consider false beliefs. Like I think there is a, a cultural false belief right now, for instance, that depending on who happens to be you know, our elected officials, you know, and I say that in plural, our elected officials, but even some people go so far as who is our elected president, depending on who that will be, will determine my happiness. <laughs> and that's a false belief. Yes. Uh, that, that, that really has no basis in reality, that why would you actually, and we've mentioned this before, why would you actually put your happiness in the hands of something else? Why, why not keep happiness in your own hands? Why would you give all of your power away? Yes, exactly. I mean, that's essentially what that is, giving all of your power away. So, for instance, and here's a completely, and this is the same topic, but in a different terrain. You know, I go see a doctor of oriental medicine because I had a terrible history with Western doctors. And this was, you know, including the Western doctor when I had kind of a form of of tinnitus in, in my right ear. And it was clearly, to me, related to stress. This is when I was a property manager up in Colorado. And that Western doctor, the ear, nose, and throat guy, said, oh, your cochlea is dying, you're going deaf, get used to it. And, you know, I was, what, 30-something, you know, years old at the time, and, and I'm looking at him going, he's like, you're out of your mind. And, 
you know, here I am, that ear is working just fine, and I knew once I got rid of the stress in my life that that noise would go away, which is in fact what it did. So anyhow, I now see this Dr. Oriental Medicine, it's really about wellness. And we talk about this, like we'll talk about flu shots and things like that, and I think that for those people that are certainly susceptible to flu, absolutely get flu shots, but... You know, we we you know, thanks to him, I've now come up with this other belief about my body, my own body, which is why not take care of it really, really well in terms from a wellness point of view, not a disease point of view, so that my immune system can handle whatever. So in my case, I don't get flu shots, and I'm not opposed to getting a flu shot, but I really love trusting my immune system, and it's totally worked out in my favor. I approach my health exactly the same. I haven't been to a medical, a Western medical doctor in over 30 years. Wow. Well, and actually, I have to admit the same thing, too, Tonio, and this is not to say, you know, I don't want to ever be closed down about anything. If I'm in a car wreck, oh yeah, instance, God forbid, I am going to be, take me to the ER because trauma care in the United States, I think, is the best on the planet. Yeah. And and it's really, it's really worked out in that sense. And this other stuff, I think there's a certain amount of responsibility on my part to take care of myself so that I can promote my well-being. And that's my job. I mean, I'm really quite astonished when you think of the statistics. And I mentioned the one in our first interview that, you know, here we are, 5% of the world's population in the United States. We're consuming over 60% of the world's pharmaceuticals. One in four... People that are, are going to college as freshmen, one in four are going to college with a prescription in their hands. That, to me, is astonishing. And when I talk to people my age, you know, and, and they'll, they'll be saying, so what meds are you on? And I'm looking at him like, meds? What are you talking about? And again, here's that consensual reality thing setting in. It's like, well, you know, if you have anxiety, you really should be taking Zoloft. And I'm like, no. I would rather deal with the anxiety and get to the root of it so I don't have to feel that way necessarily. Right, not be a permanent slave to that. Yes, exactly. So there's that, you know, so that's the underlying thing I'm talking about, and that's the deal. You know, I realize that the curriculum is not going to be you know, on the bestseller list, you know, my book. But on the other hand, I mean, it'd be lovely if it did, but it does really ask of the reader there are certain responsibilities that the soul is asking each and every one of us to take in, in terms of being alive and navigating this wild ride of being, of being alive, the wild ride of living. Yes, and there's this huge challenge that we have to deal with, and that is the challenge of our culture. And I'm going to read a quote from the book. It's a wonderful quote that relates to all of this. Actually, there's a couple of them. Um, this one's from Doris Lessing. Oh, she, I have that quote, and you read it, though, because it's a classic. And she writes, Ideally, every child should be told repeatedly throughout his or her school life, and I would add throughout their life in general, <laughs> that you are in the process of being indoctrinated by people who themselves have been indoctrinated. It's a self-perpetuating system to mold people to fit into the narrow and particular needs of this particular society. What an incredible quote, because when I ran across that, you know, and you know, she says in one of those places, 
you know, where she says, we have not evolved a system of education that is not a system of indoctrination. We're sorry, but it is the best we can do. And I'm going to move on to another one from Simon J. Ortiz, and he says, it's not humankind nor culture that limits us. It's the vastness we don't enter. Yes. And this is so connected with imagination that when we allow our culture, and this is a participatory thing that we do ourselves, to allow our culture to box in our imagination and our experience and sense of possibility in life. You were right on, and you know, I think Mary, and I don't have the quote in front of me, Tonio, but it was Marion Williamson, one of the Democratic presidential candidates. She has a lovely quote in one of her books where she talks about it's that we limit ourselves and that what we're really afraid of is fully stepping into our full power and the full capability of what love can offer. And this may be something that, that you wrote in the book, and that is, don't blame culture, create your own. Yes. Love has no culture, no boundaries, no race, or religion. Yes. And so, again, we're back to that tailor-made thing, you know, the idiosyncratic nature of the soul. So what is it that's going to be resonating with your soul? to pull all of this off so that the inherent love that you were born with, I love this is, this is again a Robert Waterman idea, which is that our whole cosmos, the whole universe, is based on the idea of unconditional love. That is the source of it all. So based on that idea, if I go out in the world and say, you know, I am angry and, and this isn't working out and da-da-da-da-da, you know, the, the, the unconditional love nature of the universe says, no problem, we'll give you more of that. Or if I go out there, like with your intention, and really going out and setting out beams of love and joy, that unconditional love is going to say, hey, no problem, we'll give you that too. So it's like that ever-present metaphor of the universe and life being a mirror for us. Yes. Exactly. There is a line in the middle of Jack Gilbert's poem, A Brief for the Defense. Great, incredible poem. But the one line is, To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. Mm. Yep. So, it, it's just, it's, you know, I just think there is actually a way, and, you know, however people create their own map, that that's really what we're talking about here. I'm just giving general guidelines and through the course of my book, but the real responsibility is creating your own map so that we back to that Joseph Campbell quote that I mentioned in our first interview, that we want to have those experiences in our life that so resonate with the deepest part of who we are that we can feel the rapture of being alive. Yes, and this book of yours really is a book that's full of building blocks that we can play with in our own lives in any way, shape, or form that we choose in any particular moment. Yeah. You know, maybe this was me going a little bit over the top, Tonio. Um, the reader can decide that. But I threw in everything from Calvin and Hobbes to Victor Hugo to all these great poets. You know, there's about 100 different poets that are represented in the book. 
that everybody can pick and choose. So what's going to resonate for you? I'm, I really went over the top so people would have lots of choices as far as, oh, now here's a nugget I can actually use in my life. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm, I'm so impressed with the tremendous range and variety of things that you, you offer in this book that we can pick and choose from. Well, thank you so much. You know, we're living in very tenuous times, mm -hmm. and there's an absolutely wonderful Wendell Berry quote where he writes, when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work, and when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey. And then doesn't the, the end of that, do you, do you have the end of the, the poem right there in front of you, Tonio? I don't. I think he says the last line in the poem is, it is the, the impeded stream that sings. Say that again? It is the impeded stream, that is the stream that has rocks in it, that is the stream that sings. Oh, so, so then the water interacting with the stones creates yes, the singing. Because, you know, there is that the, the practice in Japan in their formal gardens that they will actually place stones in a very specific location where the stream is flowing so that they can actually get tones from the stone to create an act of melody that you can hear when you tune into that when you're sitting by the edge of the stream. So I think it's, it's a lovely quote you brought up by Wendell Berry, which is basically saying, these very obstacles are the things that if we have figured out a way to navigate or, you know, work with them, this is what makes our life sing. Yes. We don't want just, you know, like the idea of that New Age thing of all I want is bliss. Well, that's great until, you know, your best friend dies in a car wreck. Tell me how the bliss is working out for you now. Right. And we don't grow if we're in a constant comfort zone state. Yeah. We only grow when we're challenged. Yeah. And right now we're being supremely challenged. So what a wonderful Absolutely. opportunity. Absolutely. So, you know, I could read this Jack Gilbert poem. There's also a lovely Jane Hirschfield poem, which has to do with this time of year, which is just a beautiful metaphor. Or, you know, there's even that Tess Gallagher poem, The Hug. Tell me what you would, you would prefer as far as winding this thing down. I would love them all, but we literally have one minute, so... Ah, we don't have much time at all. <laughs> so I'll let you choose based <laughs> on that. Actually, I'll just do a very short William Stafford poem which is just called Ask Me. Sometime when the river is ice, ask me mistakes I have made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. Others come in their slow way into my thought, and some have tried to help or to hurt. Ask me what difference their strongest love or hate has made. I will listen to what you say. You and I can turn and look at the silent river and wait. We know the current is there hidden, and there are comings and goings from miles away that hold the stillness exactly before us. What the river says, that is what I say. And we'll have to do this again. You know, Tonio, it felt like another 10 minutes. I just love talking to you. <laughs> I love talking with so you, too, and we will definitely do this again. And thank you again so much for being and for being here. Thank you so much for doing what you do to make all this happen. And until next time, be well. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that was Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. And until next time, 
Have a wonderful week.